Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today we're excited to welcome to the show the associate head volleyball coach at the University of Miami, Casey Kreider. Casey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, guys, thanks for, for having me. I this thing is, this podcast is the real deal as far as a resource for, for me. And I know lots of people uh, in our profession. So I think everybody owes you uh, an unending thanks for what you guys do. Cause this is, is, this is awesome. Uh, well, thanks for saying that. And I feel like we owe the thanks to the community for being so open to sharing what they're learning. Cause I take so much away from it, but uh, I know we, you know, we both are, Pepperdine players both played at Pepperdine at different times. So I feel like it's always mandatory to tell some stories about, about Marv and, and the influence and the lessons you learned. So if you could share some of those, that'd be a great way to start this. Yeah, man, we, we could probably spend, you know, a week on this thing discussing lessons and stories about Marv. But uh, yeah, you know, I th- there's one story that I think of um, that probably kind of touches on both, you know, in terms of cool stories and also lessons. Um, and I was a freshman, uh, 2008, uh, it was my spring of my freshman year. I was, I was sitting behind, uh, all world Jonathan Winder. And, uh, my roommate at the time was a guy, John, I think, you know, uh, Trevor Van Uden, um, who is just a rock solid human being. I mean, he's just an incredible guy. And I, the more, uh, I've gotten away from Pepperdine, the more I've realized how special he was, but uh, he was my roommate. And uh, if you know, Trevor, he was into fitness and he was pretty, pretty strong. And uh, so Trevor would go to the weight room under Firestone um, from 10 PM to midnight every night. And he'd go do 56 sets of bench press and, or whatever he was doing, you know? And uh, so he would always invite me and, you know, I was not, I was maybe six, four and 170 at the time and hadn't really done much in, in terms of strength conditioning. Uh, so he, he, uh, he would invite me and I'd kind of, you know, weasel my way out of it. Eventually I just started saying, yeah, sure. And, um, so in the spring I, I wasn't playing, you know, I'd be in practice and stuff, but I wasn't starting or anything like that. And so, uh, we would go every night and, uh, he, he was really cool. He wrote, helped me write these little plans out and, and it was just something to do to, to burn off, you know, that energy you have as a freshman. And so one night we played Santa Barbara and beat them. Um, pretty early in the season, I think. And, uh, it was maybe Friday night. And, uh, so the match goes, you know, seven to nine or whatever. And then, uh, Trevor and I, uh, went down to the weight room after the match and, um, you know, he's, he, I'm kind of getting lots of water breaks and, <laughs> you know, he's, he's doing the heavy lifting, you know, literally and figuratively there, but, um, maybe 1130 rolls around and I walk up the stairs, I'm done. And, uh, I start walking towards the locker room. And I hear, you know, the voice we've all heard a thousand times. Hey, Casey. And I turn and I look, it's 1139. And I'm staring during the headlights uh, back at Marv. And, and it's 1130. And if you're familiar about how Marv used to do it, they would sit and watch the video after the match, every match, and immediately after. And so he's walking to his truck. And here I am, 1130 at night on a Friday, you know, kind of cruising through the gym. And uh, he goes, what are you doing? And I remember thinking, man, I could lie, you know, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I just, I said, you know, Trevor and I tr- immediately try to throw Trevor under the bus, right? <laughs> Trevor and I, we, uh, 
we were just getting a little extra lift in. He was helping me lift. And he goes, yeah, we just played and we play again tomorrow or Sunday or whatever. And I start, I kind of put my head down and I start going to explain myself. And he interrupts and goes, hey, if everybody was just like you, the waves would never lose. And uh, I remember thinking, oh man, thank God I'm not in trouble. But I went back to the locker room and I just, I, even telling the story now gives me chills. And I remember thinking, uh, man, he just made people feel special, especially when they were trying to pursue stuff that was, was productive. And, and uh, that kind of makes me think of this, this concept of uh, leadership and how he's the best leader I've ever been around, probably by orders of magnitude. And uh, usually I never felt like, I don't know what you felt, John, but I never felt like he tried to mentor me in the sense that like, hey, sit down, let's talk about your life and your life's decisions and let's plan it out. And it wasn't explicit. And what it was, was I just always felt like he wanted to be great and he wanted us to be great. And he did everything he did was towards that. And uh, this, that standard of behavior that he defined in that stupid sheet of rules that said, what rule one, do things right. And that was it. Right. <laughs> and uh, so he just included us in that pursuit and it wasn't leadership by example. And it wasn't leadership by direction. It was leadership by inclusion. And I think of Trevor in that same story. It wasn't like, Hey, you need to lift weights more because you're skinny and weak. And it wasn't like, I'm just going to go down there. And I hope he, it was always, Hey, you want to come with me? I'm going to go do something that's pretty cool. And eventually I wised up, but um, yeah, that that's, I could probably tell a thousand of them, but that that's the one that always stands out to me. I even get emotional telling it because it was, it had a huge impact on me, you know, yeah. and I, I use that phrase with our athletes probably way too much, but it was pretty special. Yeah, no, it's great. I could picture so many times athletes in that situation, maybe getting in trouble and you getting a chance to be built up and to, you know, just to think about the way you're going to work the rest of your Pepperdine career. I'm sure that, that really set a tone. And I, and I feel, and I, I'm guessing you feel this way too. Like we never played at Pepperdine together and there's lots of people that didn't play the same time I did but I feel a connection to the people who played for Marv. Like there's like, we, we kind of were a part of something. And it's just like, if I saw you, it's like, you know, it's like you're a teammate. And yeah. I don't know, why, what do you think he did to help create that? Man, I think it, it uh, was probably, uh, and still is a work in progress. Um, I think that he just, uh, the way he described it to me, and I think he said it to, to lots of people who ask, is his overriding goal was always to make his players feel bulletproof. And that was the word he is, you know, invincible. And, uh, but there was something about it that was really special in that the stuff that I learned from Pepperdine uh, didn't come from his mouth uh, too often. It was mostly like you're in this incredible environment. I mean, I don't know how you get, how you feel when you, you walk into Firestone nowadays, but I still get this really warm feeling. And I think that was established with Rod Wild. And I think it was established with Jeff Stork and Bob Stavertlick and Craig Buck and, you know, Chip McCaw. And I think it was just this, there's this incredible history of people who learn to behave a pretty specific way that could be under this banner of just do things right. And, uh, mm. and it's really, I, I get the same sense that you do uh, where you may not have played with these people. But uh, you see them and there's this kinship that is really hard to describe. And you almost, uh, there's a, this kind of bizarre sense of guilt uh, in that not everybody got to experience that. Not everybody get, and I, I honestly think if, 
the world, all this nonsense that's going on in the world would probably be cured if, if every human being was required to spend five minutes or five hours or five days or five years with Marv, like we got to, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I, I don't know if I knew I'd sell it, you know, for lots of money, <laughs> but I, I don't know what it was, but yeah. I do know that it, it had probably more of an impact on my life than just about anything. My parents were pretty special, but mm-hmm. man, he's given them a run for their money for sure. Yeah. Hey guys, um, we'll let you in, Andrew. So, All right, I'm pepper that guy here. All right. Gosh, I wish. I mean, that sounds amazing. I, how much do I have to pay to get in that five minutes with Marv? It's not pepper. Um, it's not cheap. I can tell you. Yeah, that. it's expensive. No, no. especially men's volleyball players. Yeah. Well, well, Casey, I'd love to hear more about all that, but we uh, we want to get into all of all about you and, and all the research that you've done um, personally as a coach and. Um, we we're here to, to learn from you. And, you know, we wanted to dive into how coaches can apply motor learning research. And, but before we do that, how did you get interested in motor learning and, and what have you done to get into all this highly, highly academic stuff? Yeah, it, it, uh, it a little bit maybe by accident. I don't, I was not a great student. So it wasn't like I set out to say, Hey, I'm going to go, uh, you know, start reading, textbooks uh on stochastic resonance in my, in my free time that was never the point but um you know i think it's there's a couple things there one of them uh is probably similar to all of us and certainly you guys and the people that you interact with and i think a large part of our community in that i set out uh once upon a time to to find the quote unquote right way what is that the, what's the right way to coach and and i think it, if you start pursuing that concept then at some point you're going to cross paths with the scientific and academic community. That's kind of the purpose, regardless of the field of that, it's to help increase the empirical knowledge to augment the, the experiential knowledge. And so, and what a fool's errand that was as if I could read a textbook and now all of a sudden I know the right way to coach. But um, I think that was, was kind of a big piece of it is I just, I wanted to coach from the time I was 15 that I've never wavered from that. And so really what it became was wanting to, to just make sure that because I cared about this thing, I wanted to, to identify the best practices however I could. And uh, the other piece is that I, by nature, I think I'm a little autodidactic in the sense that I just, most of the quality learning that I've done in my life has been self-driven. It's, uh, I was not a good student. And I, to this day, I'm still apologizing to teachers for not taking uh, their lessons and, and stuff more seriously uh, because, but there was some, I, it was to the point where in, in fourth grade, I refused to read the books that were assigned. I'd bluff my way through them. And then in the summer I'd go back and read them and, you know, invariably enjoy them. And there was something about being able to govern my own learning process, uh, and not just doing what I'm told that, that really, uh, resonated with me. And so, uh, I think, initially got exposed to the actual field through Marv and he had a coaching class that I took that I, I was maybe the only class that I took seriously, uh, at Pepperdine. And, uh, and I kind of got a little familiar with terms like schema theory and uh, contextual interference. And, and, uh, and then once upon a time, there was a, there was a gold medal squared clinic that was run out of Pepperdine's gym. And I would kind of just, uh, tag along and badger people, uh, people like Carl, you know, and Chris and, and uh, kind of got some good stuff from them as far as the science goes. And you, you sit there and you look at the slideshow and you're pretty, it was easy for me to be pretty enamored. Uh, 
And then uh, there was some really cool uh, interactions that I had. I remember calling Jim McLaughlin when I was in college. <laughs> I was playing in college. And I called Jim McLaughlin uh, on the phone and said, hey, I, I want help. And he spent like an hour and a half. And uh, the other side of that story is my current boss, Jose Gandara, was sitting in the office waiting to be able to go home. Uh, but Jim had to get off the phone first. So I ruined whatever that evening was for, <laughs> for Keno. But um, he helped me a lot with the, the understanding of science and, and the application of it. And, um, and at some point, uh, after engaging with that stuff for a while, it, I, some of my understanding started to feel pretty hollow. Like I'd be challenged on it for my friends or, or whatever. And, and uh, I realized, hey, I, I don't understand this stuff outside of just regurgitating what people have said to me. So it became important to me to actually understand what is schema theory mean like what is that saying and as opposed to just saying you know Richard Schmidt schema theory contextual interference Timothy Lee and stuff like that that it it that that was uh, I think at some point I hit I hit a ceiling where I realized I got to go beyond this and and uh, so I started uh, looking into it and I remember um, I started to familiarize myself a little bit more deeply with uh, some of those concepts that I had heard from those people and then one day, maybe two or three years ago, I was on Google Scholar and I typed in schema theory like I'd done a dozen times before and was just kind of scrolling through. And uh, all of a sudden I came across this paper and I, the title is, is escaping me. Maybe uh, information processing and ecological approaches to skill acquisition, divergent or complementary. And I thought, oh, this is nothing. And I've never come across anything like this before. So I read it and it was, uh, Greg Anson and Digby Elliott and, and Keith Davids in 2005 was the paper. And it, it was three guys who came from theoretically very different positions on motor behavior. And they were basically just writing uh, a paper together on what are the overlaps and what are the, you know, obviously the contrast or the friction between these different approaches or these different theoretical camps. And that was a game changer for me because it opened my eyes to the fact that, that there was more to this field than just information processing, just what I thought to be schema theory and whole versus part and blocked versus random and stuff like that. There was a lot more to this, the context of this field than, than I was aware of. And that kind of set me off on this path of digging into that. And now it just became, uh, I thought, Hey, uh, I read these papers. I don't understand them. I don't know who can translate them for me. So I'll email the author. So I've somehow over the last couple of years developed some really powerful relationships with people in the field, like Jeff Fairbrother at Tennessee and uh you know keith davids at sheffield hallam and uh tom perry at the college of charleston and these people who are professors and researchers and they can guide me through this stuff and uh, that became really important to me that it was that i was being guided by the people writing it. either i was going to interpret it or the people writing it were going to interpret it for me it wasn't going to be uh another coach interpreting this stuff for me um and uh so that's yeah, kind of what led me to today and, and uh, the plan moving forward is uh, hopefully fall of 2021, I'll be enrolling in a doctoral program to explore ecological dynamics and maybe variability in movement um, with Dr. Davids in a remote program at Sheffield Hallam. That's the plan. Initially, maybe it was going to be uh, this fall and then obviously the COVID uh, pandemic uh, threw a wrench into everybody's plans. So. But that's, that's kind of where I'm headed, I think. Fingers crossed. That's really cool to, to hear the story and, and just how, um, you know, motivated you are to learn. But I think the original part of your story, how you were talking about how when you're forced to do something, 
there was, you know, very little interest, but when it was, you know, you had autonomy and, and you wanted to do it, the, the learning accelerated. I think for coaches to hear that and to understand that is, uh, is just an important message to, to hear. But let's get into the, uh, the ecological dynamics. Um, you know, I, I definitely haven't read up on it like you have and, and want to understand it better. And I feel like when I do read up on it, my head starts to hurt a little bit. So if you could maybe just in layman's terms, uh, speaking to coaches, help them understand you know, what it, what it really means. Yeah. So, uh, that, that's a, that's, I think a really normal thing, John, my, my head still hurts constantly. <laughs> and uh, I've been trying for almost every day for, for going on, I don't know, two and a half, three years now. And so that's totally normal. I think when we're, we're, to the untrained person, as we engage with this academic stuff, it, it's supposed to be overwhelming. That's kind of the nature of it. And it just kind of grappling with it, I think is, uh, a huge part of the battle, but, uh, I think, uh, ecological dynamics, um, as a pre a, a kind of as a precursor to the explanation of it, it, it can be really offensive to, at least in a coaching setting, it can be really offensive to like traditional sensibilities. And, uh, I think, uh, one of the ways that in explaining it, that I've had maybe a little more success, uh, you know, articulating its people as a contrast to those traditional, sensibilities, whether they be scientifically traditional or non-scientifically traditional. But really what ecological dynamics is, was uh, kind of the, the theoretical brainchild of Keith Davids and a couple of his colleagues, but namely Dr. Davids. Um, and it's a, it's a conceptualization, a theoretical conceptualization used to describe motor control and motor learning. So essentially motor behavior and uh, how does how do we uh, coordinate our movements? What's governing our movements? And then how do we adapt them? And uh, from, a, from a learning standpoint, how do we adapt them? And so it, it combines two fields uh, that I think to varying degrees, people may be a little more familiar with. Um, Carl Newell in the 80s, uh, he kind of came up with this uh, conceptualization called dynamical systems theory. And this introduced the idea that um, we uh, are a system, human beings are a system uh, full of like a bunch of different levels of subsystems. I don't know if levels is the right word, but a bunch of different subsystems where you can get into the nervous system, the cardiovascular system, you can get into like the cellular level. And uh, we're also, we exist in, as, as a part of a bunch of different systems. And uh, the idea is that this isn't a linear concept uh, where we could go into the, one of those systems, make a change, and and predict reliably the outcome, uh, like you could maybe in a in a computer. If I go into the computer and I adjust this line of code, then uh, I could predict the outcome. And because these are dynamic systems that are interacting with each other, uh, both longitudinally and latitudinally, um, there you have to you it's, it, you have to consider uh, a couple of things. When you're when you're considering behavior and how it it comes to pass and how it could be adapted and uh, the model that most people are familiar with is the the constraints model Newell's constraints model where you have these three actors so to speak you have the organism the task and the environment in which this is occurring and uh, kind of in the middle of that triangle is the emergent behavior and if any of those things change as part of this you know, ecosystem is if any of those things change, 
then the behavior will change. So it's not just a consideration of the organism, which in this case would be uh, the performer or the learner. It's a consideration of the task and how that can be manipulated, which is, you know, kind of leads into the constraints that approach the environment where it's happening. And um, this really kind of, if you zoom out far enough, it, it kind of gets into a philosophical consideration where, um, you know, if, if you believe uh, from a philosophical standpoint that man is a machine or man is, is like a computer where the brain would act as a central controller of behavior. So like in a computer, the CPU would be the brain, which takes inputs in perceptually uh, and then, you know, uh, uses mental representations, which is schema is where schema theory comes from. Um, and it has to process those inputs to make them usable. And then it coordinates an output using different uh, memory-based schema. And that output is the, the, the behavior, the movement behavior. Um, and that, that's, that's rooted in cognitive psychology. So there's this cognitive brain being the center of, of behavior. Um, alternatively, if you believe that human beings are organisms and that behavior is governed by the relationship between the environment and the organism, then you probably, the, the, some of the concepts that come out of ecological psychology, not cognitive psychology, but ecological psychology, uh, would make a lot of sense to you. And uh, so you combine this dynamical systems approach with this ecological psychology approach, which is J.J. Gibson and the concept of affordances and direct perception that doesn't need to be processed uh, cognitively. And out, out of it comes excuse me, ecological dynamics, which is uh, Dr. David's model. And um, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of implications to that contrast. Um, when you start thinking about uh, how would you design a practice? How would you facilitate improvement? Um, in contrast to this information processing, mental representation approach. Um, and we can get into those uh, if you'd like, but uh, yeah, the ecological dynamics, you know, to make a long story way longer than it needed to be, uh, is basically a theory that, that describes uh, motor behavior as an emergent phenomenon between these interactions uh, of the task, the environment, and uh, the organism itself. I don't know if any question I can ask is going to like set you in the right direction. Um, <laughs> I'm, try I'm trying to keep up with you here, Casey, but I, we did write out. So I don't, I don't know if this is the right question or if you want to just take it in a totally different direction. Um, but how does the constraints led approach CLA um, fit into ecological dynamics? And maybe you already answered that, but I'm just trying to keep up. No, that, that's, uh, that's, you hit the nail on the head. What, what the CLA is, is an expression an application of uh, ecological dynamics and gotcha. a, a couple of other concepts uh, that are kind of corollary to ecological dynamics, like nonlinear pedagogy, which again is an obnoxiously complicated term, uh, but it, it, it's uh, very similar in its implications. Things like representative learning design, which on the information processing side of things, we may call uh, task specificity. You've heard of probably the concept of specificity. In, in on the ecological side of things, this is just called uh, representativeness or representative learning design. And, and really, uh, when the constraints-led approach is, is an approach, uh, you often see it used in sport, so it's, it's very convenient for us. It's, it's, off, it's applied in other settings as well, but um, 
really what it's doing, it's, a, it's this consideration of practice uh, or a learning environment as a search uh, for uh, functional movement solutions to problems. Uh, and that's in contrast to what would be more traditional coaching uh, practices, which would be a consideration of practice as uh, perfection of something, whether it be a movement or a system or a tactic or whatever. And, and uh, there's, there's some, you know, uh, cognitive science that would lend itself to that idea if you get into the concept of motor programs and things like that. Um, but there's also uh, th there's also some stuff that, that isn't even represented in, in the traditional cognitive science approach either. And that's, that's where we've just gotten away or, or haven't been exposed to the science in general. But, but really, it's, uh, the idea is that uh, there, you know, you, I, I, I think uh, there's some major implications here. How do you evaluate performance in practice? D does it matter? If, you're, if it's a learning environment, does the performance matter? Well, in a, in a traditional approach, yeah, you, you use that information to understand in a linear fashion, where is this person at uh, in, a, in a performance context? Uh, in an ecological approach or constraints-led approach, um, you wouldn't probably be too concerned because the idea is that you're searching, uh, you're gonna search for functional responses to these problems that are presented by the task and the environment. And most of them are probably not going to be great. And that's okay. That's part of learning. And, and uh, this is, this is a, a model, the constraints that approach is a model that really, really values failure and really values uh, finding ways that don't work uh, as a way to promote maybe things that do. And um, the way I, I, I have conceptualized it for some of our athletes is uh, – from, from an information processing schema perspective, you could look at the, the Fitz and Posner model. So if you've heard of the cognitive, associative, and autonomous phases of learning, you could look at that like a line. And we're, we're operating towards some optimal, you know, movement or some optimal tactic or decision or whatever. And uh, you could probably point to where people are on that line uh, after observing them in competition and practice. Uh, alternatively, the ecological approach or, or a constraints-led approach, which is one of the ecological approaches to, to practice and stuff like that, motor learning, you could look at it like a blank map. And uh, all of us are going to start at different points on this blank map. Um, and this map is what they call a perceptual motor workspace. It's basically all the different variations of movement and solutions that we could have to solving problems. And our intrinsic dynamics and... Um, you know, our physiology and stuff like that will, will kind of dictate where we start on that map. But our goal in training is to go fill that map in. And that map is going to be full of, of tons of places on it that we discover don't work. That's productive practice. But if you look at it kind of from a linear perspective, then you'd say, well, if you're finding things that don't work, that's bad. We need to get back on the line. And we need to pursue this, this uh, optimal solution or whatever. And uh, so there, there's some... As you guys can probably tell, there, there's some, again, pretty offensive stuff that comes along with this. The idea that, that, that we as coaches, A, can identify the appropriate movement response uh, is, you know, there, there's conflicting opinions on that. And B, if, even if we can identify it perfectly, uh, does that apply to every learner in every situation? And C, and maybe the most important one to me is, 
if both of those things are true, could it self-emerge or self-organize if the activities that are designed and the environment at the end, the tasks that they're engaging with, could it self-organize and, and emerge uh, as a byproduct of the solving these, these uh, activity problems? And uh, the, these two camps, uh, where there's some overlap and some conflict, they would have differing uh, perspectives on that. The information processing side of things would probably say, no, it's okay to, to push people and to guide people towards specific optimal movement patterns. That's traditional coaching. You shoot a free throw like this. People that are on the ecological side of things who are uh, probably more interested in things like movement variability, it's something that, that I hope to be able to study in a doctoral program is uh, inter and intra performer movement variability. Those studies would suggest that there isn't uh, an optimal movement pattern across performers. There's, there might not even be one specific optimal movement pattern or movement solution uh, in each performer. We probably need this concept of degeneracy, which is where we can solve the same problem multiple ways. And uh, so that would suggest that that we're looking a at solving problems, not at executing a perfect movement, but. Yeah, the CLA is, is just a, a manifestation of ecological dynamics in application. What we would do as coaches, I think if I was recommending anything to a coach, ecological dynamics is fascinating. But if you want to know um, what the implications of that are, then spend more time looking into the, the constraints-led approach because that's going to give you a little more meat in terms of how do I adapt my, my coaching methodology. So one, um, it's really helpful for me to hear you describing it in, in more visual terms of like the map, sure. like, you know, um, environmental dynamics is, or uh, ecological dynamics, sorry, um, is more like filling in the map yeah. um, versus the more linear approach of check yeah. this box, go to the next one, check this box. Yeah. But then the, the second thing I'm wondering is like, if you go into a gym that is more fashioned around um, ecological dynamics, do you see volleyball players doing one skill in a multitude of different ways? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, like if you go to, you know, a Miami practice, are, are there like 10 different sort of hitting techniques? Am I asking the right question? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I think uh, one of the coolest things, my boss is uh, one of the all time great people and uh, an outstanding teacher and an outstanding coach, and I could go on and on and wax poetic. It's not because I'm trying to get a raise. I don't know if anyone's getting a raise <laughs> during the coronavirus thing, but um, you know, he he comes from a, a, a more information processing background, and uh, to his unending credit, he's allowed me to explore a little bit of this stuff, uh, not in in you know uh, without restraint or anything like that. But he's given me a lot of latitude in in exploring some of these concepts. So um, I don't know that if you walked into the Miami's gym, you would see a bunch of different hitting, uh, you know, mechanics or whatever you call it. Techniques is the big word in information processing. But um, the, you, my guess would be that to the naked eye, you'd probably be able to in, identify some aspects of invariance, right? Like uh, if you want to get really, you know, uh, general, you're going to see all of our passers pass with two arms. You're not going to see, you're not going to see any of them pass with one arm, right? And that would be an, that would be an element of invariance where all of the passers now, are you going to see uh, some of them maybe uh, swing their arms a little bit more than others? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that would be an aspect of interperformer variability. Are you going to see some of them actually use their legs? Well, uh, maybe. Are you going to see them uh, in different postures? Yeah, probably. 
And uh, you could go, I think if you, you really went like to, to the logical conclusion of a constraints-led approach being the main uh, methodology that you're using to, to determine how you approach practice and learning and, and skill development, um, you'd probably see uh, a little more variability than you would in a traditional setting. Then you would see like, uh, if we said, hey, we're gonna hit like this, exactly like this, and uh, you know we're gonna serve like this and pass like this. You probably see a little more variability, um, but you'd also I, I think the idea is that there are invariant features to this stuff. The question becomes: Do we need to explicitly determine those, or are those gonna emerge based on the nature of the task? Like, if you want to serve at the the collegiate level, NCAA Division One level, you probably need to serve overhand. Do we need to? dictate that uh, the athlete serves overhand or is that going to emerge uh, just based on the nature of if I want to have an effective serve here, it probably has to be overhand. And uh, so that's a little bit where the debate comes into. But yeah, I think if, uh, if you went into a gym, hypothetically speaking, that was entirely governed by ecological dynamics and uh, used a constraint-led approach and things like differential learning, you probably see a little bit more inter-performer or inter-player variability uh, from an execution standpoint. What you shouldn't see is, you should see, uh, hopefully, if the, the, <laughs> if the method is any good, you should see uh, less variability in the outcome, theoretically speaking. So that's this concept of degeneracy where there's lots of different ways to solve the same problem, to come to the correct response, the correct answer for the problem. So in this case, maybe hitting it high and hard or, or serving it flat and clean. It may totally. look a little different, but the yeah. outcome uh, should be not very not not super variable yeah so like the ball flight might look the similar yeah the exactly yeah. exactly and and then it, it, we can get into I, I know you guys had harjib on and man is he important and special for our our community because he's one of the few people on earth who has a genuine volleyball background and is in academia and that that's a big deal and um but he he talked a lot about focus of attention stuff which man uh, that stuff is is really really important and uh, that, I think there's some stuff that dovetails into external uh, foci. I think that's what <laughs> foci of attention and uh, how valuable those are. But I think the constraints led approach parallels the, the external stuff uh, in some, some really elegant ways. But yeah, absolutely. You'd see the ball, the ball flight should probably look pretty similar if that's what you're going for. So if we walked into your gym and, you know, you're, you're the head coach, this is your program sure. and it's about, yeah, I mean, again, keeping your job and winning and, you know, all these, all these things, of course, is would yours be, do you see yourself like 100% under the umbrella of ecological dynamics? Or would you have some sort of hybrid model? What, what would you see? Yeah, so there's a guy, a, a professor, uh, and one of the chairs of the department, psychology department at University of Tennessee, his name's Jeff Fairbrother. And he said something to me pretty early on in kind of my exploration of, of the academic side of this stuff. And he said, Casey, Never forget one thing. Uh, you don't owe me or any researcher or any article or any theory anything. You owe your athletes and yourself and probably the people employing you, uh, you owe them the best experience possible. And part of that, that, that experience is going to be winning success. So you can't just go in and say, I'm going to use ecological dynamics, or I'm going to use a constraints-led approach or differential learning, or I'm going to take a more information processing prescriptive approach because this paper says to do that. And he was adamant that 
you don't, you, you're not in debt to anybody because you've interacted with them or you're not in debt to any paper because you've read it and it says, here's what we concluded. Who you're in debt to is your athletes who deserve the best opportunity to have success. And so uh, he's like, you'll know better than I will examining your situation and knowing uh, probably the tools that, that, that need to be applied in, in this sense. So um, if I had a program tomorrow and I was the head coach, I, I, I would hope that I wouldn't just say we're an quote unquote constraints led program. I would hope that that's a really powerful tool um, and the implications from it could, uh, could manifest themselves in wins and success and keeping my job. But if not, then I also hope that uh, I wouldn't just go, well, this is what the, the research says, so I got to do that. And I, my, I think the idea here is that uh, you, everyone's heard of the toolbox analogy that, that ecological dynamics could be, uh, or, or excuse me, uh, the constraints that approach could be a really powerful tool. Differential learning could be a really powerful tool. Prescriptive explicit instruction and augmented feedback could be a really powerful tool. Uh, you know, you read these things and you can probably find those implications uh, across a number of studies. Let's make sure we're aware uh, of the application of all of them. And let's, mm -hmm. let's uh, put them in the toolbox and understand that if I'm going to go build this house, so to speak, I have, as, I show up with as many tools as possible and uh, to be able to, to, to build it uh, as, as, functionally as possible. So no, I, I, I mean, ultimately I hope that it would, I wouldn't go in and just go, I am Mr. Ecological Dynamics. I hope that I would have a good enough understanding of schema theory and the Fitz and Posner model and information processing and contextual interference. In addition to all this ecological stuff that I could look at and go, here's the, the context of the field. And this is maybe why XYZ activity isn't working. And I may need to uh, you'd be a little more explicit in, from an instruction standpoint or vice versa or whatever the case is. Right. Sounds good. I like it. So um, I, it'd be good if you could break it down just so coaches and, and we can picture it, you know, if we're, we're running a practice and we can really, you know, have a sense of like, if I'm using this approach. So uh, I guess for like a more traditional model, if you could go through a serve receive sort of drill and then also with a constraints led approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you take us through it? Absolutely. So, uh, man, service Eve. you know, I think, uh, one of the, like butterfly, everyone, everyone seems to be familiar with butterfly and you're going to probably bowl, maybe spin, maybe at some point introduce some serves. And, uh, I would imagine that the, the focus of the drill would be on, Hey, make sure you move like this. or you, you, you know, you look at that and there's some prescription there. Hey, do these things. Uh, in these changing conditions, uh, typically in a linear fashion, this one's uh, the bowl is the easiest, then maybe the spin, then maybe the serve, and so on and so forth. And, um, I, I think a constraints-led approach would would probably not uh, wouldn't wouldn't advocate for something like that too much. A, there's there's it, it would want to limit prescriptive instruction if possible. Uh, B, it would want to uh, include this uh, concept from ecological uh, psychology uh, coined by J.J. Gibson in I think the 50s or 60s called affordances. And affordances are, are opportunities or invitations for action uh, that are kind of presented by the environment. And uh, you could really get deep into the theory of, of what makes an affordance and, and maybe what makes something not an affordance. But really what it comes down to me in application is there probably should be some decision involved um, like, am I going to accept this invitation 
or not, as opposed to just do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so one of the things we've been, we've been playing with uh, in our practice maybe the last couple of weeks and have seen you know, some encouraging anecdotal results um, is we're constantly telling our athletes, hey, pass the ball off the net. It's too tight. It's hard for our setter. There's a bunch of evidence that suggests, hey, this is a good, good way to do it. Four feet, five feet, six feet is not a bad place to run our offense. We're also constantly telling them, hey, the, the middle blocker and the setter have relatively hard jobs. Pass it higher. The outside hitters can prepare better. And so we spend, we've spent a lot of time saying pass it higher, pass it higher, pass it higher, pass it off the net, you know, pass it off the net. And you're instructing this behavior, right? Uh, a constraint set approach would advocate that you design an activity that requires, not, not necessarily requires, but encourages or promotes a, a certain thing. So if we're looking to, to get the ball passed off the net and, uh, and maybe higher, one of the things we've done is played like a, a queen of the court style game, maybe three versus three. And we're going to play it out of the back row. Um, and we serve to you and you serve to us. Yeah, yeah. Typical queen of the court. The only thing we're going to change is that the, the passer is also the setter. So the passer is going to run in and set and you get either a bonus point or a, uh, it has to be in a certain area, a target zone, whether it's inside the three meter, three meter rectangle or whatever. Um, however, you'd want to adapt that, uh, that activity based on your, you know, your, your, the ability level of your players and what, what they need. Um, but they have to pass and then run in and set it overhand. And then they have to dig and run in and set it overhand. And instead of telling them pass off the net, it's, it's, it's incredible how quickly they don't want to, you know, run into the net to go set. And so they'll pass it off the net. It's incredible how they stop passing low because they're, you know, uh, they can't set it with their hands. And then you have to be really conscious of what else, what other behaviors does that promote? For example, one of the things we've seen is that the, the passers, they'll, they'll uh, pass and almost immediately in one motion start running to set. Do we want that to happen in competition? Well, probably not. So we may need to either, again, adapt the activity, uh, get rid of the activity entirely, or uh, augment the activity with another activity that maybe promotes, hey, a little more stability or whatever the case is. And uh, the really tough thing about the constraint set approach, and there's a guy uh, down in Arizona named Rob Gray, who's, who's awesome, and he describes it as uh, moving away from using recipes for activity design to becoming like a master chef who can observe what's going on and understand the emergent behaviors and the information that, that the, the athletes are perceptually interacting with and uh, being able to, to manipulate it uh, to fit whatever is needed most. And so <clears throat> from a constraint set approach, it's hard to say this is a good activity because it's entirely dependent on you know, the, the situations and the problems that are facing each individual performer. So if we have a kid who's not, who's not struggling to pass it high enough or, or is not struggling to pass it off the net, maybe this wouldn't be very valuable for her. So it would be in, in consideration of uh, the individual learner. And, and that's where it gets really difficult to describe to people because you can't just describe this activity as good. But uh, that's, that's one example that we've used for, for, server C that's a constrained activity is there yeah it got me thinking it's a great example and it's good to kind of bring clarity to it do you ever use and, and let me know is this a constraint and I feel like this becomes almost like a um, where the two camps maybe get mixed or it's informational and a constraint um, or traditional and like a constraint where if you said like a process thing say you're noticing when the the 
digger keeps their platform together, the mm-hmm. digs stay on our side of the net. And so we're just going to say, okay, you know, to score a point, you have to keep your platform together after the, you know, until the setter sets the ball or, you know, something like that. Would that still like, is that kind of like, a, cause you're talking about, you're telling them, you know, you have to do things this way with your, your techniques. So where does that fall in line with it? Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a really good question uh, because there's a little bit of a debate, especially when you start looking at people that are more interested in the application of this stuff versus people that are more interested in the theory of it. The ones that tend to be more interested in the theory, and this is very generally speaking, the ones that tend to be more interested in the theory would say, hey, you, this, this behavior should be emergent. It should be self-organized. You shouldn't be constraining towards a specific movement or specific behavior. You should be constraining towards a specific effect mm-hmm. or outcome mm-hmm. uh, that you, you'd want to promote and allow them to self-organize their behavior towards that. The, the more applied side of things is saying, yeah, in some instances, that's okay, uh, using a constraint. And this gets into internal, external, how these, these concepts uh, relate, but internal, external focuses of attention. And uh, yeah, so that, that is, and I think the idea of a constraint is, is uh, oftentimes misinterpreted. First of all, the word is, is a little uh, rough. It, it sounds yeah. like, you're, I think, uh, I like the word feature better. Uh, like if you're going to talk about a task constraint, I like task feature better, but that's just a preference. But I, every sport is already a constrained activity. You hear coaches, you know, they get offended by the idea of a constraints led approach. You know, you, you, using constraints isn't a good model. And I'm going, man, uh, volleyball itself is a constrained game. There's, there's rules and there's, uh, there's uh, you know, boundaries and there's already things that are constraining our, our behavior. And so what we're doing is we're just manipulating uh, that concept, uh, to amplify certain information in the environment that should be interacted with or, or, uh, encouraging further search for, for better solutions or whatever. But yeah, um, I think that's a debate in the community is, uh, can we constrain towards, uh, some aspects of invariance? You know, when we talked about like, Hey, an overhand serve is an invariant feature of high level serving. Uh, should we constrain towards that? It, is that better than explicitly instructing? I'm sure everybody in the ecological side of things would say yes. Uh, but should we constrain it all towards specific movements or specific solutions? Um, and there's, there's absolutely a little bit of a debate there. And uh, yeah, I think that that's uh, a really important question. For me personally, as, as somebody who's in the field, uh, I would be considering time constraints uh, or, or you know, time limitations that we have as coaches if something's not working at some point I may start constraining towards uh, something that I think could be really a movement that I think could be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. So that may happen. And that may upset a bunch of people who are more on the theoretical side. And again, they're not the ones getting fired if, <laughs> if uh, we lose. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely discussed at length in the, the academic side. of things. Thank you for listening to coach your brains out by gold Middle squared. Join us next week for more from Casey Kreider.